500, 793, 1,000, 1,260, 1,370, 1504, 1524, 1525, 1533, Over since 500 AD, probably more than that, but those are recorded 53 times. People have predicted Christ's return. Those were all years, those weren't lottery numbers. Um, Herbert Armstrong and Ronald Wineland each predicted four different dates. Harold Camping um, predicted three, two in the same year. Right? Because the first one didn't take. All 53, of course, were wrong. And the question is, why, why so many? Why so many predictions? And, and I know that doesn't sound like a lot when we go back to 500 A.D., um, but it is. A lot of dates. Why so many predictions? Why so many people on top of that? Why... Why did so many believe them when the predictions were made? Why is end times prophecy such a, a big business on TBN? Why was the Left Behind series of books from LaHaye and Jenkins so popular? And why is there a 25th anniversary edition? Seriously, why is there a, a 25th anniversary edition? anniversary edition. Fortunately, um, Kirk Cameron only made three movies and Nicolas Cage only remade one. We've been spared. But the interest didn't arise um, just in 500 AD and move forward. It actually began hundreds of years earlier. Right? The Old Testament is full of end times or eschatological language. And so much so that the establishment of the kingdom of God of, uh, had been a long-awaited, you've heard me say this repeatedly, a long-awaited, much-anticipated events for the Jews who lived during in Jesus' lifetime because of that, particularly in light of the fact that Israel was under uh, Roman tyranny, right, under the oppression of Rome and occupation of Rome. And they had, they had this deep sense of longing, right? A deep sense of longing for salvation and a longing for redemption and a long for deliverance and, and not only an overthrow, uh, but the judgment to come upon and, and for their enemies to be destroyed. And they believed that that was going to take place fully and finally all at once at the hands of the Messiah, also described as the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, when he took his rightful place upon King David's throne. And so the question the Pharisees, are, the, the Pharisees ask here that you heard Matt read in verse 20 of chapter 17, it's not, that, that, that question is not like the other questions that we've encountered previously. 
They're not trying to trap him. They're not trying to trick him. They honestly want to know, when is the kingdom coming? When when would God's kingdom be established? They really wanted to know, in the words of one theologian, when God's people could expect to be in God's place and under God's rule. But the answer that they receive is not what they expected. And it isn't what many Christians today expect either, depending upon their denominational background. You see, the kingdom hasn't been postponed. It isn't just something that is a part of some millennium to come. It isn't something that's just in the future. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is now. And the kingdom is yet to be. All of the above. Another way to put it would be that the kingdom is already but the kingdom is not yet. And we must hold those tensions and those realities in tension because Jesus does. Our outline tonight um, will look like this as we look at Jesus' answer. We're going to see that the kingdom has come because the king has come. We're going to see that the kingdom is now because the king is Reigning, he, is, he now reigns, and then we'll see that the kingdom will come because the king, in fact, will come again. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by your spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your word? And give us all ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Grant, grant all of us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth of your word regarding Christ in his gospel and in regard to the kingdom. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us and and then I would ask that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I'm weak and needy as always and in need of, of your spirit, in need of your power. So I pray that you would fill me with your spirit and grant me support and strength that I might be a pure channel of your grace this evening that I might do something, something good. And I pray these things for the sake of Christ and His church. Amen. And amen. Let's first look at the kingdom has come. Jesus begins His answer to the Pharisees' question. The question was, when is the kingdom going to come? When when will the kingdom of God come? And he answers this way. He says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, the Jews are anticipating the Messiah's arrival. They're, they're looking forward to this, and they're expecting Him to come. They're expecting the kingdom to be established with pomp and circumstance. They're expecting His arrival um, to be a grand display of military might and political power. They were expecting this extraordinary event 
that, was, that would be, for years to come, be historically commemorated in some form or fashion. And so they obviously, because they are looking forward to that, because they asked the question, they believe it had not arrived yet or had not yet arrived. And Jesus basically looks at them at this question and says, you missed it. You've missed it because you're looking for the wrong things. What you're expecting is really two different things. You, you, you have been expecting an extravagant display and pageantry, might and power and force, but the truth is the kingdom has already come. Because the king is already here. The king is standing right in front of you. He had entered, if you remember, he had, of course you would remember, we've just celebrated. He had entered the world uh, and grown up with uh, no fanfare, no jubilant displays, big parades, no crowns, no thrones. He'd come in the still of the night. He had been born in a shepherd's cave. He had been placed in a trough with nothing but barn animals and a few shepherds around him. Born in this sleepy town of Bethlehem. And he had lived in relative obscurity in this, tall, or this small town of Nazareth. But from the outset of his ministry, as we've seen throughout this gospel, he has been continually proclaiming and declaring that despite the lack of the sensational, despite all the pomp and circumstance, right, he had come and, and he was the king. The king had arrived. He was present. He wasn't saying there weren't signs. We've been seeing the signs. But he was saying that the signs weren't the spectacular type of signs that they were looking for and that many people are looking for today. Right? They were looking for military conquest. They were looking for political overthrow. They were looking for economic recovery and economic prosperity. And he had been casting out demons. He'd been healing the sick. He'd been preaching the gospel to the poor. He had been declaring forgiveness of sins. They were expecting this nationalistic kingdom. They were expecting cultural advancement. They were expecting social justice. They were expecting political control. They were expecting economic revitalization and progress. Any of that sound familiar? He was announcing and revealing a spiritual kingdom where hearts were transformed, lives were salvaged, sins were forgiven, guilt and shame washed away. Daryl Bach puts it this way. He says, the Pharisees ignored what was happening before their eyes and instead looked for signs. Thus missing what God was doing through Jesus. The kingdom did not need to be hunted for or looked for here or there. And then he says this, in short, Jesus was the sign. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. He was the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah who had come to free his people, to forgive them of their sins. 
He was the son of man. He was the king. And the presence of the king meant the kingdom had come. The king was in their midst. Therefore, the kingdom was as well. But as we've mentioned on several occasions, while the signs of the raising of the dead and the healing of those who were sick pointed to his arrival and to his kingdom, those things were limited, right? Because not everybody was healed. And those who had been raised from the dead would eventually die again, so they weren't really resurrected, they were resuscitated. Therefore, while the kingdom had come, it had not come in its fullest extent. It hadn't come in its fully consummated form. The kingdom was already, but it was not yet. But before we get to the not yet, we need to address the kingdom is now. Because the king currently reigns. The king is reigning now. You see, before the kingdom could be consummated, three things had to happen. And the first was his crucifixion. In verse 25, Jesus says, but first he must be rejected by this generation. In other words, before the kingdom would finally be established and fully be established, he, the king, the son of man, would undergo rejection, suffering, and death. And the key word being must. Right? He's on his way to Jerusalem. We've been seeing that for the last several weeks. And he's on his way to Jerusalem for his predetermined appointment. His crucifixion and death is the predetermined plan of God. And the Son of God, the anointed King, the rightful heir of the throne, would not ascend to that throne via military might or conquest. He was not going to, or he was going to ascend to the throne via suffering. The king was a suffering servant. He would willingly submit himself to scorn and ridicule and rejection and ultimately the degradation and humiliation of a cross. And all to take his rightful place on the throne and establish the kingdom. And the second and third things that had to happen was he had to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. Yes, he had to die, but he also had to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven to take his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. No one knows why Jesus didn't say it here and and if he did, why Luke wouldn't record it. But we know this is true because of what he said back in chapter 9, verse 22, that Luke did record. If you'll remember there, he said, Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And in Paul's words, when God raised him from the dead, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And then he said this, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So in other words, Christ the King, the Messiah, the Son of Man, is not only going to reign in the future, in the age to come, Paul says he is also reigning now, in this age. 
And if he's reigning now, the kingdom is now. Again, it's not been postponed. It's not been put off. It's not, we're not awaiting um, some thousand years. He rules and reigns presently at the right hand of the Father. Again, in Paul's words, God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Yes, the present age is an evil age. But the kingdom is no less present because the kingdom is a spiritual and a redemptive kingdom. It's spiritual and redemptive in nature. It's a kingdom in which Christ currently rules, in which, in which he currently reigns in the hearts and lives of those who are his. This was Paul's point in Romans 14. When he wrote, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In the words of Ken Riddlebarger, he said, The kingdom of God, therefore, is not a place or locality in this world, but it is the reign of Christ in the midst of his people until he makes his enemies his footstool. He goes on to say, The advance of God's kingdom, while inevitable, does not guarantee that evil in society will abate as the kingdom of God advances. In fact... The presence of God's kingdom guarantees conflict with the forces of evil. Wherever Christ's kingdom advances, Christians must do combat with our three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The Christian hope is that one day the kingdom will be consummated when all evil will be crushed by the Lamb, but not before. Which brings us to our third point. Right? The kingdom will come. And the kingdom will come because the king is coming again. The king will come again. Notice in verse 22, Jesus moves from addressing this question of the Pharisees to talking to his disciples. And he does so because they're probably thinking the same thing. They're probably asking that same question in their head. Actually, they're probably, as they heard the Pharisees ask the question, the, the disciples are probably nodding their head. Yeah, Jesus. When's the kingdom going to come? And from verses 24 to 37, he answers, and, it, and the answer is both enlightening and challenging. The point he drives home is that the kingdom has not only come, it will be coming because he has not only come, he will be coming again. The kingdom, while present, will not be fully and finally consummated or be experienced in its fullest extent until he returns. Again, it's already, but it's not yet. There's going to be a period between his first advent that we just celebrated last month and his second advent. There's a period of time there while he has come and he has inaugurated his kingdom, the kingdom has not been consummated. He's come and he's inaugurated the kingdom as redeemer. But he has not consummated the kingdom as judge. And in the meantime, we have to wait. But in verses 22 and 23, he says, 
while we wait, there are a few things that we need to know or that we need to remember about his return and about his future kingdom. Because guess what? No one waits well. None of us wait well. And he knew that. We grow impatient, we grow frustrated, we become susceptible to manipulation, we fall prey to schemes and taking shortcuts that others use to take advantage of us. And so he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, do not go out and follow them. In other words, it's right to want Christ to return. We should want that. We should desire that. It is right to desire to see that day. And it's right to desire to see that day come sooner rather than later. We should all be praying, come Lord Jesus. Particularly in the light of of the suffering and In the midst of this present evil age that we have to live in and deal with, evil, sin, pain, disease, suffering, and sadness should keep our eyes open and looking for His return and praying again to come, Lord Jesus. But in the midst of our waiting, in the midst of that, there there are going to be some, there have been some who have cracked the code. There have been some who have been reading the signs of the times in what used to be called a newspaper and now is just called the daily news cycle. There are those who are looking to blood moons. There are those who are twisting Scripture by imposing their system upon particular texts in order to make all of these predictions. And Jesus said, Don't listen to them. Do not listen to them. Right? He knew there would be people who believed that all end time prophecy was fulfilled in the sacking of Jerusalem. And that he only that he only came back spiritually and not physically. Right? He knew that there would be people. He knew these 53 and others, all those who have made predictions, he he knew they were going to make those predictions. He knew the books would be written. He knew the movies that would be made. And he says, don't listen. And then from verse 24 through the end of the chapter, he shares three things. Three things about his return and about his kingdom that they should listen to and we should pay attention to as well. First, he says, his and his kingdom coming is going to be distinctive. Verse 24, he says, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. The day of his return, when he comes to judge the living and the dead, and fully and finally consummate his kingdom, it's going to be a day like no other day. All other days are going to pale in comparison to that day 
What happens on that day is going to be unique and unlike anything else anyone has ever seen. It's also going to be distinctive in that it's going to be obvious. There will be no mistake that that is the day. There won't be anything quiet or secret about it. Everybody's, I don't know how, but everybody's going to see it happening. Nobody's going to be in the dark. Second, he says it's definitive. Right? It's distinctive and it's also definitive. In verses 26 to 33, he uses two of the most recognizable stories and historic events of judgment to drive home this distinctiveness, or the, I'm sorry, this definitiveness. He uses the stories and the events of the flood in Sodom. We know from Scripture there was rampant wickedness in both places, but notice that Jesus doesn't refer to it. Rather, his attention was focused on the normal day-to-day activities of life. He, He references eating and drinking and marriage and buying and selling and planting and building. In other words, people are going about their day-to-day, normal day-to-day activities, the routines of, of the week, which in and of itself is not a bad thing. Jeremiah 29 tells us that God told the Israelites while in exile, right, build houses, plant vineyards, and, and get married, right? Live life. We're to live life. You've heard me say that over and over. The problem is both examples... In both examples, the problem was that the people were not simply going about their day-to-day lives. They were consumed by their day-to-day lives. They were overly distracted and preoccupied with their day-to-day lives. They were ignoring so much so, they were so preoccupied and so distracted that they were ignoring the warnings given by both Noah and Lot of the impending judgment. They blew them off because they had better things to do. They were caught up in the busyness of life. They were focused in in on themselves so much so that they were ignoring the future and the warnings of the future. They were focused on the temporal things of the world, not the eternal things that were to come. They were turned inward on themselves. They were earthly minded. They had no regard for heaven. They were self-absorbed. They were consumed with their own thoughts and their own feelings and their own time and affections and attention to the point that they had become unaware of and even numb to their own wickedness. They loved their lives. They loved the things of the world. And they loved all of those things more than they loved God. And when judgment came, in both of those examples, it was immediate and cataclysmic. And it was too late. Decisions had been made. Minds could not be changed. Courses were set. Destinies were secured. Judgment was sure. And Jesus says, don't be like them. Don't be like them. His coming, his judgment, and the establishment of the kingdom is going to be as sudden. And we must be prepared 
in advance because when it happens, it's going to be definitive. It'll be a definitive moment. He says, if you're not prepared beforehand, the day of his return will be too late. Right? Decide now. There's not going to be time to flee. He said, hesitating is not going to be an option. Any second thoughts? And thinking, well, you know, what's more important? There's not going to be time to waffle and wonder. And then he uses Lot's wife to say, don't look back. Don't look back with a desire to hold on to the things of the world. He says, now's the time to decide. If you choose to hold on to this life, if you choose to hold on to the things of the world, you choose to hold on to your sin, you choose even to hold on to your worldly pleasures, there will be a cataclysmic price to pay. If you choose to repent, hold the things of the world, as we've been saying, loosely, open-handed, remain focused on eternal things rather, rather than temporal things, he says you'll live. And you'll have no fear. distinctive, it's definitive, and finally it will be divisive. Look at verse 34. He says, I tell you in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There'll be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. And his disciples say, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Again, it will be unmistakable. And there's debate, right, regarding the question the disciples ask ask, um, from Jesus' response. uh, We know that it appears that he's, they're asking where the judgment's going to take place. So the debate is basically, are, they going to be, are, are those who are taken going to be judged, or are those who are left going to be judged? And there are songs written about it and all that kind of stuff. But I find myself agreeing with both Daryl Bach and Philip Ryken. Dr. Bach says this, the specific locale is not important. The point that once judgment is rendered, it is final, seems to make the most sense. In effect, Jesus is saying, do not worry about where the judgment will occur, for once it comes, it will be too late, and all will see it. And then Dr. Riken says, either way, taken to judge or left to judge, God is going to cut right down the center of the human race and make a final decision between the redeemed and the damned. The eternal separation, the great divorce, will divide even the closest of relationships. People who are almost in the exact same situation in life will find themselves on opposite sides of eternity. 
And we've been learning throughout our study that that dividing line is the Lord Jesus. I have three takeaways. Not in the form of questions. The first is this. We must be wise. We must be wise when it comes to the kingdom, what it is, and when it will come. In the midst of the chaos of our culture, in the midst of our waiting, a common mistake is to fail to distinguish between the world as it is and will be until Christ returns and how it will be after He returns. And what happens is we begin to, in doing so, we develop what's called an over-realized eschatology. We're expecting what is to come to happen now. And we're never told that it will. A couple of examples, the, the health and wealth gospel, right? It's an over-realized eschatology. And sinless perfection, it's a part of an over-realized eschatology. But so is the ex expectation of a utopian society. Brothers and sisters, the reality is right mandates, right laws, the right president, the right political party, the right social policies, the right this or the right that will not, will not eliminate our woes and will not bring heaven to earth prior to his coming. We must remember that worldly governments do not hinder or advance God's kingdom. And you and I, nor anyone else, can expedite his coming. Only Christ, only Christ will usher in his kingdom. And he's going to do that at his appointed time, in the way that he sees fit. And at that appointed time, he will deal with sin. He will end evil. He will end sin. He will end selfishness. He will end the suffering of this world and this life. And when he does, when he comes, and when he does, every nation, every government, every policy, every worldly system will crumble at his feet. So for now, you and I just need to buckle up. For as I read earlier, the presence of God's kingdom guarantees conflict with the forces of evil. Our hope is that one day the kingdom will be consummated when all evil will be crushed by the Lamb, but not before. So in the meantime, we fight the good fight. We finish the race. And we keep the faith. Be wise. Secondly, we need to be aware. I talk a lot about being faithful in the little things, and, and we need to do that. We need to be faithful in the little things and the ordinary things of life. 
We need to live peaceable lives. But we need to remember that even in the ordinary life, we can get too busy. We can get preoccupied. We can get distracted. And we can become overly focused on temporal things, good things, good gifts from the Lord. And at the same time, simultaneously lose sight of and even avoid the sin that so easily entangles us. So we must remain alert. Right? We must stand firm. We must not stray. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We need to hold the things of life and the world loosely and live our lives with a view of what is to come and in view of eternity where things will last. We need to be aware. And finally, we need to be ready. Again, Christ's coming is going to be distinctive, it's going to be definitive, and it's going to be divisive. He's come as Redeemer, inaugurated the kingdom, but He is going to come as Judge. He's going to consummate all things. And our citizenship in the kingdom that assures us of, a sal- of salvation, that assures us of eternal life, is not something we merit. It's not something that we earn. It's received through faith. It's received through faith in Christ. The forgiveness and righteousness that we need to be citizens of the kingdom are found only in Him. And the surety of our salvation in that future consummated kingdom arises out of our current status as citizens in the kingdom today. And so we have a twofold choice. And the choice is to be made today while there is time. Again, a twofold choice. First, we ask ourselves, will an answer, will we rest in Him to take the judgment that we deserve upon Himself on our behalf, or will we take our judgment upon ourselves? The judgment that we deserve, will we... we rest in Him taking it for us, or will we take it ourselves? And secondly, will we continue right, to pledge our allegiance to ourselves and sit sovereignly on our own throne, the throne of our lives, or will we submit and pledge allegiance to Him, who alone is worthy to sit on the throne as King of kings and Lord of lords? I'm not asking anyone in the room to make Jesus Lord, because He already is, whether you believe it or not. I'm simply asking for you to bow a knee, as Aaron said a couple of weeks ago, for you to bow a knee while there's still time and to do so willingly. The choice is clear. Jesus says, this, choose this day whom you will serve right, before it's too late.
Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are gracious. And I would ask that by your spirit and grace that you would enable us to receive this word tonight with faith and love. Allow us to lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would you water the hearts of those who've heard your word preached and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.